Friends, I want us to consider what we should expect of the Christian life. What is the Christian life like? What is the Christian life like? Now, I, I wonder if we were just to take that, uh, that question there and we were to ask people out in the world, I wonder what answers we would get to that question. What is the Christian life like? Uh, let me speak to the boys and girls for a, a moment or two. I wonder if you as boys and girls went out tomorrow in school or whatever and you asked your friends what they thought it was like to be a Christian I wonder what answers you would get to that question maybe some of your friends would say well it seems to be a bit boring to be a Christian it seems to be a bit dull would they say something like that what about the rest of us if we were to ask the the unbelievers in our lives what they thought it was like to be a Christian what would they say to us might they say, well, to be a Christian, it seems almost fake. It seems almost false. A lot of talk about uh, spiritual joy and spiritual satisfaction. But people maybe not living as though they are spiritually satisfied at all in Christ. What would they say? And would any of that be true? Would any of that be real? What should we expect of the Christian life? What is the Christian life like? Well, in our studies of Mark's Gospel... We have just heard the Lord Jesus Christ announce the coming of the kingdom of God. Haven't we? I mean, it was just, what was it, just a few verses ago in chapter 1. Jesus has stood up and he's announced the beginning. He's announced the inauguration of a new age of God's dominion. Well, what Jesus does in this section of scripture that you've got in front of you just now, is he shows what life is like for believers in that area of God's power. And so this is important, what we're looking at this morning. I wonder, did you see why it's important? You still live in the same era. What you've got before you in Mark chapter 2 is actually a window into the ups and the downs that await us in the, the Christian life. It's a window into what the Christian life is like as we try and seek to walk with our God. What we're going to do really this morning is try and zoom in on three aspects of Jesus' thought in these verses. Three aspects of Jesus' thought. I'll give you them. God willing, we'll see this morning that the kingdom of God brings joy. The kingdom of God, it brings sorrow. And the kingdom of God, it brings change. So you got the three of those? It's joy, it's sorrow. And it's change. But I tell you what, before we launch into this, let me pray. And we'll look at the first point. So let's bow our heads. Father God, we need you. All of us in here need you. We desire greatly this morning uh, to hear the voice of our God. And so we ask as we consider uh, the joys and the difficulties and the sorrows of the Christian life we pray, would you speak to us? Would you open up scripture? Would you apply it to each and every one of us here? And we beseech you only in the name of Jesus. Amen. Right, let's make a start. Let's consider that first point. The kingdom of God brings joy. It brings joy. Okay, now, even a cursory glance at what you've got in front of you, it reveals the kind of main topic doesn't it? You just look at this and you see, what is the, the, the section about? It's, about? it's about fasting, isn't it? So this group of people 
they come to Jesus, and if you take the context of kind of increasing opposition in account, they come almost in an accusatory way. It's like they're saying to Jesus, Jesus, you and your disciples are not religious enough. Jesus, you know, they're saying John the Baptist, his disciples, they fast. The Pharisees, they and their disciples, they fast. Jesus, what about you? What about your disciples? What's the problem here? The topic is about fasting. Now, as soon as that, will we call it an accusation? Well, as soon as the question's out there, you'll see that Jesus responds. And he responds with wedding imagery. Doesn't he? Did you notice that when we read through? It's almost like it's a parable, a parable of a marriage. Now, here's the thing that I want you to think about. I want you to think about how Jesus refers to himself in this sort of wedding imagery. Let me just read it to you. You can follow along if you want. It's verse 19. Look how he refers to himself. In response to this question, he says, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast? Well, he is with them. So how does he refer to himself? Do you see it all in amongst this, this waving imagery? Jesus refers to himself as the, the bridegroom, right? Now, I, I just want to pause on that for a split second. Just want to unpack that. Because it's actually more dangerous than we think it is here. Um, if, if you're familiar with scripture, you're familiar with the church, you normally come to church, you are also familiar with that imagery, aren't you? Aren't you the idea of Jesus as a bridegroom? Like time and time again, we've even studied this quite recently. Time and time again in scripture, we read of the Savior, we read of the Christ, we read of the Messiah being, he's, he's the bridegroom, isn't he? You know this. Uh, you know, he's the groom and who's his bride? The bride's the church and there's the, the, the marriage feast of the lamb and all that. We're familiar with this line with Jesus as the bridegroom. Now here's the danger. The danger is because of our familiarity with this imagery, that we might think that people listening to Jesus at this point were also familiar with this imagery. And I need you to understand that they weren't. See, all the, the, the instances that you're thinking of just now as Jesus is the bridegroom, they are all what? They are all New Testamental images. All of them. And you need to hear this. Nowhere in the Old Testament was the Messiah, the Christ, the coming Savior, spoken of as a bridegroom. Do you see the point here? None of these people listening to Jesus would have understood this image of a bridegroom as being him making a messianic claim. You see that? That kind of raises a question for us. Jesus still calls himself the bridegroom. Why? Why is he calling himself the bridegroom then? Uh, well, a number of the commentators on this section of scripture are kind of hilarious when it gets, gets to this bit here. Because they say, well, okay, he's not making a messianic claim, so why does Jesus call himself the bridegroom? Why not? You know, he needed some sort of image and everyone likes a wedding. So Jesus has just kind of picked the bridegroom out of thin air. Now, unsurprisingly, I'm going to kind of disagree with that just now. See, think about this. Okay, in the Old Testament, the Christ and the Messiah was spoken of as being a bridegroom. But who was? Who was? In the Old Testament time and time again, God himself. Yahweh was spoken of as being a bridegroom. Isaiah 62, uh, as the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God rejoices over you. Do you see what's going on here and now? 
What is Jesus doing? He is equating once again himself with Yahweh, with, with, with God. And okay, it is veiled here. And I'm not for a second suggesting all the people listening to Jesus at this point would have seen it, would have understood it. But you do, don't you? You get this. You see what Jesus is doing here and now. He is declaring a certain his own divinity. He calls himself the bridegroom. Now, in some ways, unfortunately, that still leaves us with a question. Like, what's his point? I mean, we're dealing with fasting at this point. So what does this claim of divinity have to do with with fasting? What's his point? Well, not to embarrass you too much, but Andy and Rachel are busy planning their wedding at the moment. Well, I say that Andy and Rachel are planning. Rachel's maybe (laughs) planning the wedding and they're having it in Ireland next year. I think, actually, as a congregation, what we should do is put a little bit of pressure on Andy and Rachel to have a wedding like people in the first century in Galilee would have had. You know, they wouldn't have had a wedding day. They would have had a wedding week. That's what we want. We want seven days. That's not saying better. Seven days of celebration and festivities. But in seriousness, though, isn't that what Jesus is saying here? Like an answer to this question, why are your disciples not fasting? What's he saying? He's saying, fasting? Sorrow? That's not appropriate. Why not? The bridegroom has arrived. This now is a, a time of rejoicing. The celebration is starting. The kingdom of God is here. The festivities start. The kingdom of God was a time of joy. And, and, and if you and I, or if, if you have been here morning and evening over the last number of weeks, you'll see that we're kind of returning to familiar ground, are we not? You not notice that? That time and time again, God has been speaking to us about joy over the last month. And I think, in actual fact, what God has been doing is something truly profound here. That he has been narrowing us down into one particular point. I wonder if you see what I mean. We started off a few weeks ago with a very general point about Christian joy. And then God, last week, last Sunday night, he narrowed it down. Were you here? Do you remember it? There must be joy in gospel proclamation. And I think what God has been doing is dragging us, kicking and screaming, down to this point that he's making here, where today in Mark 2, he shows us the only place where true joy is found. And what's the answer to that? Where is true joy to be found? What does he say here? True joy only found in the presence of the bridegroom. Do you hear it? True joy only found in the presence of God, in the kingdom of God. That's the message. And with that, I want to speak to you this morning if you are a Christian believer in here. And I really want to ask you this morning, how is your soul? Are you this morning a Christian who, to all intents and purposes, is in spiritual despair? You know, are you someone who is in the spiritual wilderness as a Christian? Are you someone who has lost this joy that your that your minister is speaking of? Have you lost that? Friend, do you, do you see that that will never be recovered if you just sit back on your spiritual haunches? It doesn't work like that. You will never recover joy through mere routine. Look at Mark 2. 
loop to see in whom this joy is found. And as a believer, I'm saying to you this morning, cast yourself once again entirely on this bridegroom, entirely in Jesus. In him is this joy. In him is joy. But I also want to speak to the other people here. I'll tell you this, one of the great things about preaching in London City Presbyterian Church over recent months is I can almost guarantee that when I get up to the front here before me, I will have a number of people who ever profess faith in Christ Jesus. And, and we love having you here. And it is an exciting thing. And you speak to me. And I know that you are wrestling with these things, aren't you? Like, okay, you have, you're not born again. And you haven't committed your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. But you're wrestling with this. And you're considering the gospel. And I'm wondering this morning, here and now, do you hear the message that God has given you in Mark 2? Think about it. It's a marvelous thing. God this morning is showing you the only place of spiritual delight in your life. Isn't that an incredible thing? See, really, the, the, the message of the gospel is actually very simple, isn't it? It says that you are broken. It says that I am broken. We are all here, broken. And we can only be fixed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you hear the message? In Him, in Jesus, in this bridegroom is forgiveness. In Him is cleansing. In Him is the satisfaction. In Him is joy. Is that not worth exploring? Is this forgiveness and the joy that accompanies it? Is it not worth even today? Asking God for. Friends, here, Jesus was why his disciples weren't fasting. And what an awesome answer it is, isn't it? The bridegroom was with him. God was amongst man. And that was something to celebrate. So we see that the kingdom of God brings joy. Secondly, we see that the kingdom of God brings sorrow. And it's not inconsistent. It isn't contradictory. Rather, what we see here is that to this life of spiritual satisfaction in Jesus will be added seasons and times of hardship for the people of God. Hardship. Um, Theologians for many, many centuries have discussed and debated the limitations of Jesus' knowledge in the Incarnation. The limitations of Jesus' knowledge in the Incarnation. As soon as I say that, I know what happens. Like, we freak out a little bit, don't we? And our alarm bells go off. Say, what did he say? Jesus' limitations in the same sense. Is he sort of casting... Uh, doubt on Jesus' perfection or his divinity or sinlessness, but no, not a bit of it. And in fact, the, the fact that Jesus having a, his knowledge in some sense is veiled in his earthly ministry, that is a biblical fact, isn't it? You know, think about what, what Jesus says in Matthew 24. I mean, Jesus, Matthew 24, in some senses, he says, I don't know. You know, he says, only the Father knows the time for my re- return. So it's a biblical fact. But actually, it's the limitations of Jesus' knowledge in relation to the cross 
that has puzzled theologians down the centuries. I wonder, do you, are you following me? Do you see what I mean? How much did Jesus know? You know, as a kid, and in his teenage years, like how much did Jesus know of what awaited him? Like, okay, he was entirely aware of his divine nature, and, and, and he was aware that he had come to atone for sin. But to what extent was this knowledge progressive? To what extent was there a sort of progressive revelation of the exact details of the type of death that Jesus would, would die? And into that discussion, what I want you to see is the importance of what you've got in front of you. And in verse 20. So let me just pause there and let me read verse 20 to you. Think about the theological debate and let me read it. But the time will come, Jesus promises, when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. I wonder, do you see where we're going with this? Do you see what Jesus doesn't say? Jesus doesn't say the time's going to come when the bridegroom is going to leave his people and they're going to fast. What does he exactly say? He says, the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And do you see that verb that's used there? Very often that verb has really disgustingly sort of violent connotations. See what Jesus is saying? He's saying, you know, there's one day is, is coming, one day ahead of me here, where the bridegroom, where I will be forcibly removed from my people. See that verb? It is the same verb that is used twice in Isaiah 53 in the Greek translation of that. You know Isaiah 53 very well, don't you? You know these words. Like a sheep stand before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. What's the next bit? Do you know it? Listen, by oppression and judgment, he, the suffering servant, our Christ, he was taken away. I think it's marvelous stuff. I think it's so illuminating, isn't it? We are seeing that even here, where are we? We are Mark chapter 2, people. Even here, the cross is casting its shadow upon the ground. Isn't it? Isn't it? And it is that, Jesus says, that will lead to sorrow for the people of God. Now, if we lay that theological a discussion aside for a moment. What I think we're left with is actually for us this morning some really practical help for the Christian life. Because what, if you think about it, what is Jesus doing when he says here, the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken and on that day they will fast? What is Jesus saying to us? He is promising you as a child of God that in the kingdom of God there will be hardship. Isn't that it? He is promising us that in this kingdom of God, there will be sorrow. And I do not know about you. I personally find that incredibly reassuring. Isn't it reassuring? It means that Christ does not expect me to live a permanently happy, clappy life. It means that Christ does not expect his people to be permanently living this constantly kind of sanitized and smiley existence. That's what it means, surely. It means that we do not have to pretend, especially in the life of the church, that as Christians, everything is tickety-boo. 
We don't have to pretend that we are not going through spiritual difficulties, real miseries and despair. We don't have to pretend. And I wonder if that sounds like you this morning. I wonder if you are in the pit of despair. If you are, follow me please. Because I wonder, do you see that here in these verses, God provides you with a tool to help you in your spiritual need? Do you see what the tool is? Do you see what... Well, wait a minute. What's the portion of scripture about? What's it about? It's about fasting. And what does Jesus say here? He says, on this day of sorrow, what, what will the disciples do? They will fast. And we kind of pass over that and we think, oh, he's just he's talking about sadness. Generally, he's just talking about sorrow. Jesus didn't say that. He says they will... They will what? They will fast? And isn't it true, friends, that in the modern church, in churches like ours even, we have sidelined this discipline, the discipline of fasting. Isn't that true? It's not a very popular thing for us to talk about at all. And isn't it true that if we fast, or if you fast, or I'll change it, when you fast, why do you do it? Why do we do it? Isn't it true that 99 times out of 100, we fast for guidance, don't we? Don't we? We fast to seek God's will in our lives. And I want you to see here that scripture fasting is used much more widely than that. And that here in front of you this morning, and in Daniel, and in Nehemiah, and in Ezra, and we could keep going, fasting is often associated with people's deep, deep, deep sorrow. People seeking God's face earnestly through fasting. And so maybe if if you are at the stage this morning of great and deep spiritual despair, maybe you, like the disciples were at the cross, maybe in your heart of hearts, you feel as though your Lord has abandoned you, that He is He is gone from your life. I'm I'm suggesting to you this. Maybe it is time to abstain from food for a specific period in order to seek the face of your God. Because, hear me, the Christian life is a life of spiritual satisfaction and joy. It is. But it ain't easy, is it? And what we have here is a promise that there will be sorrow. There will be for us times where we may just need to fast. So we see that the kingdom of God brings joy. We see that the kingdom of God brings sorrow. Thirdly and lastly, we see that the kingdom of God brings change. I'll be frank with you. Um, For many, many years, I was utterly bamboozled uh, by the way that Jesus concludes this very short section of scripture. Absolutely clueless. I mean, do you see it? Like sewing cloth (laughs) on garments. Pouring wine into wineskins. And as a kid, you know, when my parents would read that or I would hear that read in church, I'd say, Jesus, what? What is this about? You know what? Is, I wonder whether you see it. I, mean, I, I wonder whether you see that this is very, very much a, a message about spiritual incompatibility. Do you see that? Spiritual inconsistency. It's new wine that can't, sorry, new cloth that can't be sewn onto old garments. And it's, and it's, 
And it's new wine that can't be poured into old wineskins. It's about incompatibility. Do you see it? Jesus is saying here that this new message that he brings, this message, this new message of the kingdom of God, that it was entirely inconsistent and incompatible with what? The old ways of Judaism with their rules and with their regulations, incompatible with that. And you know as well as I do that these, these Pharisees, they loved their rules, didn't they? Absolutely loved them. Especially, like, even think about what we're dealing with this morning with fasting. Um, we saw a couple of weeks ago that Scripture demanded in the Old Testament one day of fasting per year. One day, right? The day of the atonement. What do the Pharisees do with that? Guess what they do with it? They add to it. Yeah, we're not fasting one day a year. What do the Pharisees do? They fast twice a week. We fast on a Monday, we fast on a Thursday. And do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying that the message of salvation is not about this. The message of salvation is not about procedures and mechanisms. It's not about rules. It's not about regulations. What is it about? It is about a living, personal, saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it? And we're talking about fasting, so let me give you something to chew on. The human heart loves legalism, doesn't it? We love rules. I think deep down, whether we know it or not, we would much rather that the message of this church was about do's and don'ts. The message of this church would be about rules and regulations. We would much rather that. Because it would make it easier for us in some senses, but it would also make it easier for us to judge other people. But I'm wondering, do you see the warning that Jesus lays down for us in these verses? What does he say about the wine? What does he say about this new wine? He says, if we try and pour it in the wineskins, what happens? The new wine is destroyed. See it? He says, if we take this glorious new message of salvation by grace and grace alone, and if we in the church, if we try and turn it into a message about rules and regulations, what happens? We pervert the gospel. We, we, we destroy this glorious message of the kingdom of God. And so friends, when we read this, not only should we understand it, I think, but it should firm up our resolve. We, as the people of God, are never going back, are we? We're never going back to the old ways. The old has done what? It's gone. And what has happened? The new has come. And what has Christ done for you as a Christian? He has kept all the laws and all the rules that needed keeping. And this message, the message of the church, it isn't about these mechanisms. And it isn't about these rules. It is about that relationship with Jesus. The message of the church is about, through faith, through grace, reconciliation with our God. And time is gone, okay? But I do just want to end like this. Were you here last Sunday morning? Were you? Do you remember what we we saw about heaven? Do you remember it? We saw that in heaven is prepared for the people of God, what? A meal. Do you remember it? In heaven is prepared for you a wedding feast. I wonder, do you see in these verses what we learn about glory, what we learn about heaven? Don't we learn here that there awaits for us a life of 
uninterrupted joy. A a time where there's absolutely going to be no sorrow at all for, for you as a child of God. Do you see why we learn that? What's going to happen there? Well, at last, in glory, at long, long last, the bridegroom, he is going to turn and he shall see before him his bride. And she, the church of Jesus Christ, will stand before her groom and there will be no sorrow. There will be no pain. There will be no misery. Why? Because there and then he, the bride, will never leave her side. She will know that he, the great bridegroom, will never, ever be taken away. Friends, there is joy. Joy in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And know this, as the children of God, in his presence, we shall be forevermore. Let's pray.